if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, please, and chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read from the first verse. Ephesians chapter 2 from the first verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us have a further word of prayer, please. Our dear Father in heaven, we would say to you, hallowed be your name. We would say to you, O Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we would ask of you, Lord, that you would give us this day our daily bread. We thank you that you fill us with good things, O God, even those things that we've partaken in already today that we so often take for granted. But, O God, it's the spiritual food that we're asking you for now. And we pray that you would minister your word to us in the way that only you can. We ask you to communicate your word to us. Lord, speak to your people. Feed your sheep, Lord, the sheep of your pasture. Grant them bread and nourishment to sustain, to strengthen, to deliver, to heal, to mend, to bring back in the way, to restore. Oh God, we need the bread of the living Lord Jesus. And we pray that he would be our portion today. And we ask that we would have faith in the hearing of your word. That Lord, our hearing would be the hearing of faith this morning. So Lord, we look to you. Without you we can do nothing. But we want to tell you, we do believe with all our hearts in the Holy Spirit. But we are asking you, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would speak what is on your heart and overrun my words so that what is said is what you want to be said and not something simply out from ourselves. Lord, be with us today. You know the needs of your people. Please, would you speak to them, we ask. We pray that you deliver us from every devilish distraction and even the restlessness of our own flesh. And will you help us to be still and know 
that you are God. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in our previous gathering together round the book of Ephesians on a Sunday morning, we were focusing on the first three verses of this chapter 2. And I just want to give you a resume to remind you about the things that we said so that we can have them firmly in our minds as we address the fourth verse, which is linked to what's gone before. So remember, in verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were not half alive. We were dead. And uh, we needed the Lord to come to us. Because when you're dead, you can't make yourself alive. That stands to reason, doesn't it? You need somebody outside yourself to come to you and do something upon you that is quite simply miraculous and nothing less than miraculous because you can't raise the dead just like that, can you? No man has ever raised the dead. Only God can raise the dead. And sometimes he uses men within his service and people have been raised from the dead. We thank God for that. We thank God that in Ephesians chapter 1, our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's the backdrop to what Paul is speaking of here in chapter 2. But we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, and we followed the course of the world. We were followers. We were those that followed the ways of the world. And we were following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, disobedience there uh, can be translated impersuadable. You can't persuade somebody. There's a willful, unbending disposition of heart that we were in. Before we came to Christ, we were sons of disobedience. Paul goes on to say in verse 3 that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and we carried out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was our condition. So we're dead in our sins. Brothers and sisters, the scripture shows us that we were hostile toward God. The Bible shows us that in our flesh dwelleth no good thing. There was nothing in you that wanted to turn to God. Nothing at all. You and I, by nature, were haters of God, and we were those who didn't seek after it. Remember Romans chapter 3 clearly shows us that there's none that go after God. So it doesn't matter how much persuading someone may give to another. If that person isn't met with by the outward force of God's dunamis power, that person will remain against what is being told, even if it may appear reasonable to him. Why? Because the problem isn't simply in the argument, it's the fact that my heart doesn't want to receive it even if it's true. Because I hate God and I don't want anything to do with him. You say, well, some people are nice people. I know people who aren't believers who are nice people. Don't you? I do. I know some people who seem really nice people who aren't believers. Some people who aren't believers sometimes seem more nice than people who are believers. I mean, I don't know how you get your head around that, but um, that's the way it sometimes appears, doesn't it? Why is it then, if they're so evil, that they can do good things? Even the Lord Jesus said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Ah, yes. We We will be nice to everybody except God. 
It's quite amazing. You talk to people and they're the most loveliest people. And then you start talking to them about the Lord Jesus. And have you noticed their face starts changing? And what really is underneath comes to the surface. Why is that? It's because by nature we are haters of God. We are all part of Adam's fallen race. And we hate the things of God. And so each one of us, dear friends, is in this condition that Paul paints in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And there's no way out of it. This is the terrible thing, you see. How do we change? If we are dead, if we are haters of God, if no one seeks after God, if my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, if I've got a heart of stone, how do I change? Because a heart of stone is a heart of stone, right? The only way round this, or the only way through this, is if God intervenes by his power in my life. And in your life. That is the only answer and remedy. Paul gives us the description of what's wrong with man. And then he gives us the remedy. And the remedy isn't in ourselves. The remedy has to come from outside. And it does. It comes from God. You see, in verse 1, Paul says, and you. But when we get to verse 4, when we get this word, but, Paul is now going to change the emphasis from what he's just been speaking about to speak about something else, but it's connected with what's gone before. The word but there then says, but God, right, in verse 4. Paul paints this terrible picture about what we're like in verse 1 to 3. Then in verse 4 he says, but God. Verse 1, and you. Verse 4, but God. You see, what is interesting about this passage is that Paul focusing on the Ephesians, what they were like before they were converted, doesn't go on in verse 4 to say what they did in order to find salvation. Do you notice that? You would have thought, with Paul focusing on what the Ephesians were like before they were converted, would then, after saying but, focus on what they were like after they were converted. But he doesn't. Why not? Well, have a look carefully at this. But God being rich in mercy. You see, I would have thought it would have said this. But you repented of your sins. You earnestly laid hold of the Lord. And as a result of repenting, you came through to saving faith in Christ. That's what I would have thought it would have said. And actually, when you read Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he's on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching to this crowd that have just interested, and some were mocking even, on what, uh, what was happening with the Spirit of God coming upon the disciples. What happens is he preaches the gospel, and then he's, the people are cut to the heart, and they say, Men and br- brethren, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? So in a sense, if Paul had said in Ephesians 2, but you repented and were baptized, and you received the gift of the Holy Spirit, there would be nothing unorthodox with putting that there. There's nothing wrong with saying that, because that is the necessary response for us to enjoy the grace of God. We need to repent of our sins. We need to turn to God. We need to do all these things. So when Peter spoke that on the day of Pentecost, he was absolutely right. He was demanding these people to make change. He was making demands upon them that they have to repent if they're going to know the salvation of God. And that's absolutely right. And that's what we should be doing today. We shouldn't simply be trying to sugarcoat the gospel and make it palatable to unsaved people to try to get them to suck on the gospel. We should not be offering something like the gospel as though it's a sweet in a shop. It's not an offer. It's a proclamation. We declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, you need to repent. That's the way we should be preaching these days. The gospel isn't presented like that to the outside world today. And it's no wonder there's such weakness within the church as a result. 
If you offer people some kind of easy salvation and believism and give them something that seems appealing to them, of course they're going to take the bait. You see, the question is at the end of the day whether we're more concerned with having people on seats within our churches or whether we are more concerned with souls and their destiny after they die. That's the question. And unfortunately, we sugarcoat the gospel and say sort of a seemingly nice things to get people saved. But only God can save people. But nonetheless, Peter proclaims the gospel and says, you must repent and be baptized. Every one of you, every one of you, no exception, that's the requirement. So requirement is made upon people. So why doesn't Paul say that here? In Ephesians 2. And the answer is because repenting is not the beginning of your salvation. Let me say that again. Repenting is not the beginning of your salvation. You say, surely it is. No. You say, I've always been taught that if I repent, that's when I'm saved. Do you remember I just mentioned about Peter on the day of Pentecost? There's something that happened before the people asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? Do you know what it was? They were what? Cut to the heart. What is that? That's conviction of sin. How did that come? By the power of the Spirit. Okay, this is the thing. It's an operation of God before we respond. Friends, this is absolutely vital that you see this. I'm preaching to you what the scriptures say this morning. You cannot be saved by your own efforts, by your own works. It's not the result of our own exertion that we come through to salvation. It's the result of God doing something to us. You see, Paul's going right back to the very foundation of our problem in verse 1 to 3 and this solution right to the root of the solution in verse 4. And it's not us. It's God. Only God can save people. Do you realize that? It's so important that we do because otherwise we are subtly Perhaps without realizing it, probably quite honestly without realizing it, withdrawing from God something of the, or an element of the work. You see, repentance itself is the gift of God. You can't repent unless God gives you the gift of repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 makes it quite clear that repentance is a gift from God. So the command goes out to the people. The onus is laid on the people, but it's God who does the work. And so in verse 4 of chapter 2, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now notice where Paul begins. He says, but God, showing that God is the only one that can save people, ruin sinners, only God can save them. And then he goes on to say, being rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy. Our God is abundant in mercy. And I think it's so important for us to see this. This is one of the attributes of God. This is what he delights in. God delights in mercy. And if he didn't, nobody would be saved. The only reason that people are saved at all is because God has had mercy on their souls. Do you remember what the scriptures say in the book of Titus? Just turn there quickly because this is A parallel passage to what we're looking at, really. Titus chapter 3. Verse 
Titus chapter 3, and let's read from verse 1. But understand this, sorry I'm in the wrong passage. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, is that what I'm looking for? Yes. And authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds like verse 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't it? Similar sort of description, just saying how awful we are before we are saved. But then you get verse 4. But, there's that word again, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There's the word again. It's according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, he saved us because he had mercy on us. If he hadn't had mercy on us, we would have got what we deserved. Now this is such an important thing for us to grasp because unless you grasp or have some kind of revelation of the fact that all of us are deserving of hell, we will never appreciate the value of mercy. If you believe that somehow in yourself there is a measure of goodness that is redeemable of yourself, you will not understand the mercy of God. You see, what we've got to realize is that God's estimation of sin is far more strong than ours. We think sin's bad, but in the light of who God is, it's something quite awful. We have very little understanding in these days of the holiness of God and therefore we don't appreciate the heinous and evil nature of sin. We don't realize how abhorrent it is in the sight of God because we tend to measure up our own sinfulness in regard with what we see about us. It's very difficult not to. Actually, the sins that I do are not that bad because most people around me are into terrible sins. But that's not the way we should be estimating our own sinfulness. You remember Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, there was such a sense of being undone, of the unworthiness of the servant of God. He thought, this is it, woe is me. Woe is a strong word, it's like... I'm, I'm done, I'm finished. In the presence of a God who is absolutely holy and has no spot in him, who cannot tolerate sin. Now you imagine, or no, you think about that kind of aspect of God's character, that there's no sin, no stain, nothing, and then you see what God says about men's hearts. And it's a wonder that any of us are saved. Because what we really deserve is eternal separation from a holy God because we are unholy people. And if we have a grasp of that, it will make our praise to God all the more rich because we will be saying, Oh God, who am I that you should have had mercy on my soul? I'm just as sinful as everybody else. I'm just as unclean as everybody else. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Now what is interesting is that Paul is speaking to the church here. 
and he says about the love which the Lord has loved us. Now when you look back in verse 3, he says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice he's making a distinction between those who would become believers in Christ and the rest of mankind. Notice he's making a distinction between the church at Ephesus and everybody else. But the distinction isn't according to us being better or the distinction isn't according to us doing some really good repenting. What is the means of the distinction? But God, being rich in mercy. That's at the heart of you ever coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to see that it's not because we are more worthy of salvation than anybody else. It's because God has chosen to have mercy upon us. I think this is so amazing, brothers and sisters, if I think about it for a moment. Because we always put an emphasis within ourselves that yes, God did have mercy on me, but there must have been something in me that God saw that he wanted, or that it must have been because of something I did that God had mercy on me. There's something deeply embedded in our psyche that seems to believe that there has to be a reason on our part why God has had mercy on us. But do you see, the question is, is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible state that? What do the scriptures say? What's the order of things within the counsel of God? You see, you can't earn mercy. And I can't earn the mercy of God. It's not something we've done. You see, the Bible says in the book of Romans and chapter 9 about vessels that are afore prepared for glory. That are prepared beforehand for glory. Well, if the vessels prepared beforehand... It's not something that I have done. It's something God has done. The word mercy comes up so many times in the book of Romans 9. I'm just going to turn there quickly. Romans 9. It says in verse 21... Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his, known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the question is then, who are the vessels of mercy that God has prepared for beforehand for glory? Have you ever thought about that? 
Maybe not. Looking at some of your faces, no. <laughs> well, it's in the next verse. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So those whom he called are those that he was afore prepared for glory by means of his mercy. It's very simple, really. And so God has had mercy on us. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2 that this was why we were in the condition of being dead in trespasses and sins. Okay. So the calling is linked to what God has already purposed for us according to his mercy. It's a wonderful thing. So coming back to uh, Ephesians 2, look what Paul goes on to say. But God being rich in mercy, and then he goes on to say because. Now, why then is God rich in mercy? Why has God been rich in mercy towards you in saving you? If you've been born again of the Spirit, God's been merciful to you. And there's a reason why he's been merciful to you. Now again, Paul doesn't say, but God being rich in mercy because we repented of our sins. Does it say that in your verse? Do you need to repent of your sins? 100%. But I'm going by what is at the foundation here in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. The reason God has been merciful to you, wait for it, is because he loves you. That's it. You say, no, John, John, John. This can't be right. You're going way over the top here, brother. There, yeah, God does love us. I know that's true. But, add your own clause in, but, <laughs> I did this, this, and this. Oh, how difficult it is for us to conceive that God can love us not because of anything in us but because he chose to love us. How difficult for the natural mind to perceive such a thing because it's not natural. That's the point. Not only that, is it is a little bit annoying because actually we do want a little bit of involvement in why God has actually chosen to love us. You know, yes, God said his love upon me, but because I did this, that, and the other. That's not what the scriptures say. The reason the scripture says God has been merciful to you is because God has set his love upon you. You say, okay, why then has God set his love upon me? Well, the, if you told me like that, I might ask the question, yes, indeed, why has he set his love upon you? <clears throat> But I wouldn't be so unkind to do that. Well, I might be. <laughs> the reason God has set his love upon you, brothers and sisters, is because he has chosen to love you. You say, why? I say, take the way out the way and live by faith in the word of God. It's basically humanism that tries to reason things out. To dis make them descend to some kind of element of understanding on our part. You see, if you understood God in your mind and every aspect of his dealings with you, you'd have a God that was within the limitations of your own intelligence. Do you really want a God like that? Do you really think our puny little minds can grasp the greatness of God? No, of course not. God has a purpose. It's not that he's being random. It's not that he's acting on impulse. 
This has to do with the counsel of God in time's eternal past. Quite clearly from the scriptures. This is not something disorganized, chaotic and random. What you see when people are being saved is the outworking of plans that God had in place in the counsel of the Godhead from time's eternal past. The reason God has set his love upon you is because he has set his love upon you. Now listen to this. Let's imagine there is something about you. Let's say that God set his love on you because he thinks there's something about dear Peter that is just so wonderful. I, I'll set my love on him. Now imagine if God set his love upon you in the knowledge that there was something about you that he loved that would make his love with you conditional upon that being operative for the rest of your life. And if you weren't that later in life, God presumably would reject you. You see, if God based his love upon you based on anything in you, you can't be certain of his love. But the reason we can be certain of his love is because it's not based on anything in us, but based upon his own character that is unchanging. That's it. That's it. God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. You say, you, can you give me some examples? Okay, I'll do that. I'll give you the, one of the easiest examples I can give you. The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. Why did God choose Israel? Exactly. Nobody's got the answer, have they? There's no reason. Why did... What about the poor Hivites or Hittites or Jebusites or... Parasites, whatever rights you want. What about them? Why didn't God choose? There's so many to have chosen. Why Israel? Now listen, God didn't choose Israel because Israel was going to be a wonderfully obedient nation to God. Have you noticed that they're not walking with the Lord? By and large, the Jewish people don't know their Messiah. They're walking... With a blindness, with a veil over their hearts, and they need to know that they need their Messiah. We do need to proclaim, as God gives grace and leading and wisdom, the truth of the gospel to the Jewish people. But they're blind, they're ignorant, they don't know God. Why did God choose them knowing that they would rebel against him? Well, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says this. I'll read from verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's a very clear statement. This is distinguishing the nation of Israel from every other nation for the blessing of God upon them. Out of all the peoples on, who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. So now the Lord is showing the people of Israel, it's nothing about you that caused me to set my love on you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, totally insignificant in the natural. God chooses the smallest, the weakest, unto showing forth that it's nothing in them of themselves 
as the reason why God chose them and loved them. For you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. What? Now in the natural you would say, well, what? That's I was hoping to get to some kind of reason. And God gives the reason. The reason he loved them is because he loved them. The reason he chose them is because he loved them. The reason he was rich in mercy towards them is because he loved them. You say, that's not fair. I say, really? I tell you what would be fair that the whole nation, every nation on the face of the earth, be obliterated by God. That would be fair. That's justice. If you're saying it's not fair, if you're saying you want justice, just think what you're asking for. God had a purpose with his people to bring the gospel to the whole world. How easily we actually blame God or we actually say his ways are not fair, don't we? Say, why has God chosen Israel? Why can't he choose, I don't know, another nation, the Spanish? Nice people? Or Bulgaria? Brother, you know, America. (laughs) Why did God choose Israel? Why did he set his love upon them? Because he loved them. But why did he love them? Because he loved them. Yes, but why? Because he loved them. That's it. That's it. You'll never get beyond that. Absolutely. God's sovereignty. He decides who he chooses. So in the word of God, Paul actually says, has the potter no right over the clay? Does he have a right or not? He does have a right. So what he does with the clay is his own business, right? So we, if you go back to um, back back a page to chapter four and verse thirty-seven, still talking about Israel. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Again, he loved the fathers. That's one of the reasons actually in chapter 7 you read his his connection in chapter 7. I didn't read it, but it goes on to say... um, because it, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And then you go back to verse 37, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring. Why did he love the fathers? Because he loved the fathers. Okay, we could go on and on like this. Another example is Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And just have a look at verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, an everlasting love doesn't begin somewhere, really. God just loves Israel before Israel ever became a nation. From times eternal past, he set his love upon them. You say, well, is there any advantage? Was there any advantage in being Jewish back in the day of the Old Testament? to the other nations. Maybe it was that God chose Israel, but maybe maybe for some reason it it wasn't advantageous being Jewish somehow. 
I don't know how, but somehow. And the answer, of course, is yes, it was advantageous being Jewish. You remember that in Romans chapter 9, Paul says they are Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's to them belongs all these things. And Paul goes on in chapter 3, going back to chapter 3, he says in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And his answer is, much in every way. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So you were highly blessed and favored if you were Jewish in the time of Moses. Because God set his love upon the people of Israel. And God hasn't stopped loving the people of Israel. Because his love for them is everlasting. God doesn't stop loving Israel when the New Testament comes in, because even the New Covenant has been made, essentially, with Israel and the house of Judah, we come into this New Covenant as Gentiles, by the grace of God. But it's to them. So then, why is it that they seem to have been rejected? Because there's a hardening in heart part that has happened to Israel in order that the Gentiles comes in. But who brings the hardness in? God. You mean God has hardened? Yes, God has hardened in order to bring salvation to others. And there's a time coming when God will lift the veil from their hearts. And the Jewish people will see their Messiah and they mourn for him. You see, God is working mightily. But we're going on to another subject here. I need to get back. right? So the fact is, God set his love on Israel because he loved them. What about the disciples? Have you ever thought of the twelve? They were always in living faith, weren't they? Never did anything wrong. They never made a step wrong. They never denied the Lord. They never rejected him. They never poured curses down on themselves. Do you know that God knew they were going to do that before the Lord Jesus called them to himself? Are you aware of that? We have a God who declares the end from the beginning. He already knew what they were going to be like. And yet, when he sees him, when he's going walking by, he sees one of the disciples that is to be, calls them by name. And you go through your early chapters of the gospel. You can have Matthew, Mark, whatever you like. You'll find that immediately they left everything and followed Jesus. Now why is that? Jesus only called their name. Said, come, follow me. And they did. Have you ever thought that they're leaving behind their livelihood? They're leaving behind the nets? I don't know what the parents are going to think. I mean, you just the whole thing, you sort of think, you just read these scriptures, don't you? You sort of think, oh, isn't that nice that they just went off? And for, they, I mean, this is absolutely massive. Imagine it. It's like me just deciding to, the Lord Jesus come into my door and say, John, follow me. And I'm off. What about the pension? <laughs> what about the bills? What about the nets? You see, when Jesus called those whom were to be called, they came. That's called effectual calling. And it's in the word of God. And these ones came. Why did they come? Did Jesus offer an easy life? Well, why did you come when the Lord called you? It's because he called you. There's something about the voice of the Lord that doesn't simply cause one to hear and think, oh, that's a nice voice. 
there's power in his words. You must remember, everything that the Lord speaks is powerful. It's living. His word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And when he speaks, things happen. It only takes one word from God. And the lame are healed. And the leper is made clean. And the dead are raised alive. One word. Oh, friends, when Jesus calls Lazarus out, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he awakened and came forth. Jesus calls, he brings, he draws, he leads, he gathers to himself. Well, think about these disciples, Alina, okay? Here they are. These disciples are following Jesus, and we happen to know that they didn't give Jesus an easy ride. Jesus is thinking, at times, he must have looked incredulously at them. You still don't believe? But in the Gospel of John, and chapter 13, and verse 1, Jesus knew his time was drawing near to go to the cross. And the scriptures say, Having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the uttermost. Having loved, in other words, having set his love on them, he loved them to the end. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. how little we understand the ways of God. What about yourself? What about yourself this morning? If you've been born again of the Spirit, you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord came to you and he set his love upon you. Why? Was it because you spent a week in prayer and fasting? How many spent a week in prayer and fasting before they got saved? We couldn't do anything. We were dead. We were hard. We were hostile. We were enemies. We were loveless toward God. And the scriptures say that it's not that we loved him, but that he first loved. He first loved us. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. We should be called children of God. And this is what we are by the grace of God. Going back to Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That was the motivation. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Isn't it amazing that Paul reiterates something that he's already said in verse 1? It's as though he's underlining the point that we were dead. Comes up in verse 1. Comes up again in verse 4. Even 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. What does the scripture say? made us alive together with Christ. And then he puts this phrase in, by grace you have been saved. Now, consider as we come towards a close, this phrase, made us alive. This word made alive simply means from the Greek to impart life. To cause to live. So when it says made alive, it literally means to cause to live. To give life. To impart life. We have it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Or begotten, some versions have. It means the same thing. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has made us alive. He has caused us to live. It's like what it says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's another way of putting it. So, God has quickened you. He's made you alive. He's brought you to life together with Christ. And if you look, um, we're not going to look at it this week, we'll do it next week, but if you look, it says, together with Christ. And verse 6 says, raised up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This shows us that the resurrection of our Lord has become our resurrection. His ascension is our ascension. You see, if the head is raised to life, the body follows. And we are part of this body that has been raised to life, to newness of life. We had done away with the old ways. We're made to live. We once dead in trespasses and sins. Now we're dead to sin and alive to God. Oh, friends, see in these passage, this passage the joining of yourself with the person of the Lord Jesus. We've died with him, we've been buried with him, and we've been raised with him, and we're ascended with him. We are seated with him now in the heavenly places. And our lives are hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 3. What a salvation we have come into. This is not light this is extremely profound. Who can undo these things? What can separate us from the love of Christ? What glorious things have happened? The Lord Jesus' death has become mine. He died for me, but in him I have died and buried with him in baptism and raised to newness of life. It's just an extraordinary, glorious reality. And we know that in Adam all sin. But praise God for the second man, the last Adam. And in him all live. You can't die in Jesus. In the sense that spiritually you're ever separated from him again. You go to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, consider with me the mercy of God over your life and realize the richness of it and consider it's not because of what you've done it's because of his love and you see therefore the Christian can now say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus why because of anything in us if it was anything in us there would be room for condemnation still to come in but because the salvation of God is dependent on God and the righteousness of Jesus and his sinless life his death his burial his resurrection his ascension he's seated at the right hand of God because everything depends on who he is there is no condemnation for me now because Satan cannot point the finger at the power. Satan cannot point the finger at God. He can't point the finger at the Lord Jesus. It's his blood that is atoned. And I am clothed now in his righteousness. I am irrevocably linked with the Lord Jesus in his death, burial and resurrection. And so are you. And the Lord planned to have you for himself before he even created the world. He knew you by name. He's written your name in the Lamb's book of life. He has chosen you. And because he chose you, he called you effectually to himself. He made you alive. 
By grace you have been saved, not of works, not of action on our part. For how can a heart of stone repent? It needs to be taken out the way. And the operation of God on your life has meant that you can now respond to God and you can now love God because of the mercy of God. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he's had mercy on you and you and you and you. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because he loves you. Why does he love me? Because he loves you. I don't deserve it. He loves you. Does God love everything we do? (laughs) We do things wrong. It's not that suddenly God sees our sin and thinks it's good. No, 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 no. Never. But when God sees his children slipping into backsliding, he knows how to put them into a corner and how to deal with them strongly. Because the Lord disciplined those he... Loves, not hates. Loves. What a God we have. What a salvation. Brothers and sisters, if you're born of the Spirit of God, the only thing that can keep you in condemnation is a lack of apprehension concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or some defective knowledge you need the whole counsel of the truth of the gospel to arm you against the condemnation of the enemy. I want to tell you, this kind of teaching on Ephesians 2, where it speaks about the Lord doing the work, and the Lord keeping, and the Lord's salvation, and the power of the blood, the devil hates it. Why? Because there's no answer to it. So, you and I need to be those that truly immerse ourselves in gospel truths. If we don't, the enemy will use the word of God to pin us down in a perverse way. Hold fast to the truth of God's word, to the light he gives. Remember, his love is everlasting. Why does God love me? I have no reason to give you except that he does because there's nothing in me that would elicit the favor of God but thank God because he has set his love upon me while I'm dead in trespasses and sins I know he will love me once he's quickened me I know he will keep me to the end I know I have a high priest whoever lives to make intercession for me And the very Lord Jesus that prayed to his Father in John chapter 17, saying that I have kept those that you have given me, even includes us. He's the same keeper he was to them. And we have so much to to be resting, brothers and sisters. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. A debtor to mercy alone. That's what we are. Brothers and sisters, this leads us humbly to Calvary's hill and we bend the knee and say, only your mercy could have done this. Only your mercy could have saved me. May God write this truth on our hearts. Because if we live in days of perplexity and darkness that are coming, and we are unsure about what God has done for us in the gospel, we will be fearful. But it's the truth that makes you free. Live in the good of the fact that the Lord has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. You're commanded to rejoice in this, according to Jesus. Not that you have power over demons, but that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life.
and it's all because of Jesus. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his love, great love towards us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us, made us, made us alive together with him. We'll look at a bit more of that next week. But for now, let's thank the Lord. Dear Father, we want to acknowledge before you this morning that it is because you were rich in mercy, because of your great love towards us, that you saved us. And Lord, we just want to thank you for divine mercy when we deserved wrath. We deserved your judgment. We deserved to be separated from you. Oh Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Father, thank you for not sparing your own son, but giving him, giving him up for us all. We thank you that you so loved this world that you gave us, your precious Son. That whosoever puts their trust in you will have everlasting life. Oh God, we cannot tire of these glorious truths. Thank you for setting your love upon us. Thank you for saving us. Keep with us all that has been on, of yourself that we might ponder anew the greatness of our God and the gospel of truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.